Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us for the weekly update Friday mornings here at JM in the AM. Today, uh, Malcolm Honline is in Jerusalem, and that is from uh, where he'll speak with us this morning here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's always great to be with you, but especially from beautiful, sunny Jerusalem. And those who are here can attest to how gorgeous it is today. Well, Jerusalem is amazing. We're trying to convince everybody to be there in May uh, at uh, the 50th anniversary of the reunification of Jerusalem. We're talking about that a lot, but the truth is, as you've always pointed out, the key is just to go, go as often as possible. And if you want a good way to fight back against the enemy, Malcolm, and I mean the physical enemy that our brothers and sisters face every day in Israel, and I mean the BDS enemy and the UN enemy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the best ways for diaspora Jews to counter all of that is to continuously travel to the Holy Land. So let's hope people... Absolutely. There's nothing. And tourism is up this year. Uh, I think it's almost uh, 3 million. And uh, the numbers are picking up all the time. So despite all the attempts to boycott, uh, I saw there was uh, the amount of investment in Israel this year reached also a, a record high of, uh, you know, uh, merger acquisitions uh, involving Israeli companies. I mean, it's astounding that, uh, you know, the, the ones who are getting hurt are the Palestinians and others. You see that even on the West Bank, the 180, the, the industrial zones are booming, and the demand for space in them can't be met. There's not enough, uh, they can't allocate enough space for all of the companies that are are trying to get there. So uh, for those who, who get gumi and who are concerned, when $4.8 billion uh, was raised by high-tech firms in, in, in the past year, which is an all-time high, I think it was up 11 or 12% from 2015, that's uh, a good reason for optimism. Ah, one trip to Jerusalem, and as usual, it's put you into such a positive frame of mind. The big story overnight, <laughs> the big story overnight, everybody wants. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I know. I'm always anxious to see how you're going to react to those. Uh, the big story overnight that everybody wants to know about right off the bat, of course, is the Syrian army claim. Syrian army command said Friday that Israel fired rockets at a major military air base outside Damascus and warned Tel Aviv of repercussions of what it called a, quote, flagrant attack. Has Israel admitted to anything? And I don't know, if we're speculating already that maybe Israel is in fact responsible for this, why would they do this at this time? So, um, Israel um, doesn't deny it, and they didn't um, specify that they carried out the attack. But all of the markings of this Again, the fact that missiles were used because of the installation of the S-300, the, the very sophisticated Russian uh, defense air defense system, they're not flying planes to places like the Damascus Airport, which is where this uh, incident supposedly took place, and that there would seem to be a big explosion, which means that there were likely weapons there, probably on their way to Hezbollah, to Lebanon. Israel's uncovered a number of um, these kind of uh, uh, caches and uh, of, of weapons, and recently discovered uh, some that uh, the, of the new uh, mounted missiles provided by Russia, very sophisticated ones. Because of bad weather, these which are are mounted on trucks had to be moved, and because they were moved, 
they become visible. And Israel was able to see some. So I don't know whether they're the target, that was the target, or other uh, items, but they, they, that is why missiles are used and proved to be pretty effective. Um, very similar then, you know, uh, the way it's reported, be, people think this is, you know, something that doesn't happen too often, but we've seen many times where Israel takes action when there are arms or caches of different things on the, on the move and they want to make sure to eliminate it as soon as possible. So as, as dramatic as this is, and as dramatic as the Syrian reaction is, it's not that unusual. It has happened periodically, uh, hopefully more than we know and is uh, very important because this is the only way to contain what what we already know is a massive shipment by Iran of weapons going to Hezbollah. Hezbollah has a huge presence in Syria. So the movement through via, via some of the militias and other groups, uh, and especially Hezbollah itself, moving these weapons uh, into, into Lebanon. In Lebanon, the forces and others are uh, looking for more and more sophisticated weapons. We've seen them use it. They, these are often stolen weapons. Uh, we know that in uh, in Gaza, for instance, the new ISIS group that's been emerging there has weapons uh, that were supplied by NATO to Libya, in, in Libya, to forces fighting in Libya, and they get stolen or, so, or sold or compromised in other ways. And the same thing with uh, American weapons and, and Western weapons that have gone to, to Syria. We know uh, that they ended up in the, in the wrong hands, right. uh, ultimately. So, you know, uh, and Aoun, the new president of Lebanon, was in Saudi Arabia begging for the restoration of the money, the $3 billion in aid they used to get, because they need it for their military, which becomes more and more dependent on Hezbollah, which he, with which he is aligned personally. So the dynamics and all of this about, and, and the, you know, the shipment of weapons and provision of these weapons is very significant. U.S. intelligence officials warned their Israeli counterparts to be careful when transferring intelligence to the White House after Donald Trump becomes president. This according to an Israeli newspaper. Uh, I mean, why this would be, you know, made public to begin with, I have no idea. This is the type of warning I would assume that you would prefer and most would prefer if it would stay quiet, right? That's number one. And secondly, is the way that Israel handles the transfer of intelligence going to be any different once there's a different president in the White House? Isn't the same procedure going to you know, hold true you know, no matter who's sitting in the White House? Yes, I think it's the same thing holds true. Uh, don't forget the people, aside from the top echelon, remain largely the same. Right. So the people that on, on operational level Israel's dealing with on a day-to-day basis are going to be the same people. So number one, we don't know if the story is true. Number two, and you know there is a lot of fake news these days, as, as we've all seen, especially when it comes to intelligence communities. Number two, it would have no significance, the administration warning them not to share the information after January uh, 20th with the new administration. Of course they're going to do it. So... You know, it, it raises a lot of questions about the authenticity of this of the story, and perhaps they said, "Don't do anything until we leave," or you have to be careful about what you you tell people because of that. See, but I had a theory. No real restriction. See, I had a theory about this. As this feud continues, and to what degree it's a feud, I don't know. Everybody could speculate on their own. But as this feud continues between U.S. intelligence officials and President-elect Trump, or the Trump incoming administration, however you want to classify it. Maybe they simply, maybe somebody 
uh, from the U.S. intelligence officials made this public statement simply to embarrass the incoming president, trying to suggest that, you know, once the new administration takes over, there's going to be much more likelihood of leaks and irresponsible behavior. Is that possible? Uh, absolutely. I said that, the, you know, it, it could come from any one of a number of sources, legitimate and not legitimate. And those who are not legitimate can have a lot of different motivations. So people have to, especially because in this era of the social network, because you can say anything and anybody can uh, propound stories and you see how quickly they get picked up and how quickly they become a fact, even though there may be very little relevance to the, to the actual story. And the main news, the really important stories, it gets such short rift that it's it's really uh, it's very frustrating for people like me when I see the real news that goes on. Like Aoun's visit to Saudi Arabia gets almost no coverage. The the new ISIS group in in Gaza, people don't know about it. That it grew from fifty people in twenty fifteen to about nine thousand now, and and um, is being supported by ISIS in in um, in the Sinai. Well, that can have real uh, long term uh, implications. And yet, that, those stories these days get virtually no coverage. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio exclusively around the world at NahumSiegel.com, the NSN NahumSiegel Network, and of course the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is in Israel. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. I was wondering when you said Gaza if you meant Sinai, but now I understand. It's sort of like an expansion of the Sinai chapter of ISIS at this point? Well, it is a native. It is native to Gaza, but aided and bed and trained by uh, by Al Maqdis, which is the uh, ISIS in the Sinai, and they have uh, they've helped set them up. They, I don't think they're financing them, but they certainly helped set them up. And as I said, they they have these stolen weapons from Libya. But that, but, but at the same time, the story, the scandalous story that Hamas tried to seduce Israeli soldiers online. That got headline coverage everywhere, right. and the story, you know, went around the world so quickly. You know, they did something foolish, but it's not—it's not something that you know is, is unusual, or and the damage was very limited, if any. It was a warning to people just to remember that you know you don't respond to anything, and especially salacious things. But that story got got uh, so much coverage about you know what what. Uh, what is going on? But the the um, the fact that in Gaza you have uh, you know the the building of the tunnels, the expansion of their activities uh, gets so little coverage about uh, you know and and the reality on the ground. Then everybody's surprised when they read that Israel is preparing for a war with Hamas, but this war is to, to wipe them out and not to allow them just to keep coming back and, and doing the same thing uh, again and again. No one, unfortunately, is surprised when a, uh, a truck is rammed into a crowd in Jerusalem and three very young uh, female soldiers Four. of the IDF and one very young male soldier of the IDF are murdered in that fashion, right. plus 16 injured, etc., etc., etc. You know the story. I mean, I, I, I've read so many articles this week on how these vehicular attacks are nearly impossible to prevent. You've discussed this on the show before. Uh, and, and I'll just ask you the same question again. I mean, is there anything at this point that Israeli intelligence or, or anybody can do to stem the tide of these types of attacks? They prevented 180 attacks in Union Sharmon in the West Bank last year, a shooting attacks, you know, that would have been serious. So, but those you don't read about because they don't happen. 
Here, you have an individual, he does not seem to have been, and, and in many cases, or most cases, even in the last attacks, uh, recent year, uh, they're not part of an organized group. They're more inspired by ISIS or by radicals of other kinds, uh, but they have not found direct links to an ISIS group or, or, uh, or Hamas. Hamas is trying to instigate it, and, and the PA honors them. You know, the PA is paying the widow of the murderer, of this uh, really barbaric murderer who drove into this crowd of young people, backed up, drove into him again. Seven times he was referred to by Palestinian TV, the official TV, as a shahid, as a martyr. And, and he, uh, the same in Al-Hayat al-Jadida, the PA officially, official daily uh, newspaper. But Abbas never condemned the attack, and he, they will pay $760 a month for life for for his widow, and at one time grant of some additional amount. Well, now, thank God, we have legislation being introduced. We have people who in Congress who are working to to counter it, and I've talked about what uh, Sandy Gerber, and he recently wrote a piece on it, uh, and others have done to expose that this is a fixed part of the PA budget, $350 million to pay for all those who are in prisons and all those who have killed, and, uh, you know, it, it's such... An outrageous thing. What's interesting this time to me is the European reaction. That at the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin right. and Paris City Hall and the Rotterdam City Hall, they projected the Israeli flag. And the Rotterdam they actually flew the Israeli flag at half staff. But the on, on the other two, they covered the Brandenburg Gate with a, a projection of the Israeli flag, and the same at the Paris City Hall because I think they could identify with what happened in Berlin, what happened in Nice, what happened in other places. And beginning to see that this this is their problem at, at least as much as it's Israel's problem. And when you ask me what can they do to prevent it, you can ask the same question of every city in Europe today. What? How do they? What capacity do they have? They invest a fortune in intelligence. They keep half of their military in the country patrolling. But what what real capacity do they have? Israel's record in this regard is actually very strong. Skeptics might say that some of these European countries uh, have a, a, a unique knack of memorializing Jews, but uh, to to think of it from your perspective, only memorializing and only memorializing. Only memorializing. Right. They don't. They, the living Jews, they have a problem with dead Jews. They always seem to find time for and they right. find a way to to commemorate. And, well, yeah, and, and, and I have said this yeah, and to you, them and on many occasions. Right, makes, and, you, and you know, makes me crazy. And you know, I agree with you. But in this case, you're adding a little twist to it that they, you know, felt this uh, kinship to what happened in Jerusalem because of what's happened in their own countries, which is an interesting twist on the whole thing, frankly, um, that they actually, you know, right. that they actually went out of their way to make that public statement. The images were, you know, quite uh, remarkable, frankly. Uh, they were dramatic. Yeah, the, very dramatic. And the, but, the, but till now, I mean, till recent years, terrorism was Israel's problem. They did not see it as a shared concern or right. no matter how much we talked about the growth and how they ignored the growth of Islamic fundamentalism inside Europe and the takeover of the massive uh, population growth. But long before this immigration drive, these problems really began. Right. So, you know, they, they ignored it, but it was, it was always seen it's Israel's problem and maybe Israel's fault. Yeah. Now they're saying, well, if we say that, then we're at fault for what happened in Nice or in the market in Berlin, and right. et cetera. 
Part of the reason, and coming from the other side, part of the reason why after the Bataclan attack, they had to invite Prime Minister Netanyahu to France. You know, remember that whole controversy about who should, right. should, yes, should yes. not and, be. And it was a questionable invitation. Right, exactly. Uh, it was not a wholehearted uh, outreach. So you saw some of the press reaction in the aftermath of the ramming episode, this terrible uh, uh, murder in, uh, in Yerushalayim. And that is the theme of handcuffing the soldiers. There were these rumors that, you know, some of the soldiers there would not shoot. Is there, in fact, some type of cloud over Israeli soldiers at this point because of the uh, decision last week by the military court that sentenced uh, the young man, you know, who's involved in the Chevron episode. I mean, do you think there is, in fact, hesitation now among Israeli soldiers because of what they fear could happen in the courtroom after an episode like this? I don't think at the moment that that's what they thought about. I can't uh, say because this issue has been debated in Israel and it's still continuing about what did these young soldiers remember. Many of them were new recruits. Many of them were very young, uh, many women also amongst them. Uh, and yet uh, it is remarkable how many stood to, to fire at this guy. He was coming, barreling at them. You don't have time to think. You don't have right. time to react. So instinctive reaction is to run away from, from the immediate uh, scene. Uh, and because most were military, I assume that they all felt that everybody would react the, the right way. The, the people in command have since come out and said that they did, in fact, do the right thing, that some of them stood in, and those who were in a position to fire at him did, and that uh, and it was more than one, that was, as was re- initially reported. Uh, I guess this is something they will have to address because it's not the first time, it's not the second time uh, that... Uh, soldiers have been targeted in this way. In several instances, they fired. In several instances, they never had a chance to to cock their guns and get ready. Plus, just to add to to what you just mentioned, many of them were not combat soldiers or trained that way. Many were in the education corps. So there's so many details we just don't know, but the press loves to speculate. And for some reason, the secular media, I'm not even quite sure why they loved that story so much or that angle of the story so much, but they were really uh, harping on it. That Israeli soldiers, maybe they're hoping that Israeli soldiers will in fact be restricted from taking action like that. Donald Trump's pick to lead the Pentagon defended U.S. policy in support of a two-state solution and named Tel Aviv as Israel's seat of government in testimony before the Senate on Thursday. I'm sure you're familiar with the reaction from the uh, from the people who are hesitant regarding a two-state solution, from the people who desperately want to see Jerusalem as the uh, home of the United States Embassy and as the official recognized capital of Israel. So with that in mind, what's your reaction to the appointment of, to the nomination of James Mattis? Well, he has made some controversial disturbing statements as a private citizen uh, when he was in Aspen at a conference. Uh, And uh, I think, though, that this, you can understand that he is a military guy who came to Israel frequently, even though his command, the central command, does not include, it does, it's Middle East, but it does not include Israel. Uh, and he had a good relationship, and I asked several people in the IDF about this. The, the, but he, what, so he was saying that, for me, the capital was Tel Aviv, because that's where the Kiryat, that's where the IDF headquarters are, that's where all the military you know, um, brass sit. So he said that, I, I, for me, it's Tel Aviv. I don't think he understood or was focused on the broader implication and then later said, well, that's for the State Department uh, to determine it's their business, which is true. But one would have thought that given the hundreds of Republican congressmen have already written a uh, 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 supporting resolution to move the embassy and all of the debate that everybody would have been familiar with it. But 
so he he um, I think he his comments could be explained and and especially in light of the fact that he supposedly had a good relationship with the many in the idea. By the way, is it is it just the PA and Jordan who who warned that a move of the embassy to Jerusalem would be uh, uh, would be a, a provocative move that would lead to terror in Israel? Are, are there others as well that are you know issuing these warnings? I'm just wondering if Jerusalem even you know if they were given the go ahead and you know the United States would encourage the move if if they you know care that that Jordan the PA and others are warning about uh, you know repercussions that could happen. Well, so it's a very complicated story, as you know. The, uh, the Abbas has been traveling around the Arab world trying <coughs> trying to stir it up and warning that American embassies will be closed, they'll be stormed, there'll be uh-huh. violence. They sort of backed off of those threats, by the way, and now, just like Iran backed off of the threats that if we dare continue the sanctions, you know, there will be all-out uh, ramifications, etc., and you saw the, how they backed off. Because when it comes to strength, when it comes to saying to doing the right thing, the question here is doing it the right way, how you do it so that it they can't be exploited and made into a provocation, because in and of itself, having an embassy in the West Bank or recognizing an embassy should not be a provocation. But it is a sensitive issue, and for King of Jordan, who is supposedly, you know, one of the protectors of the holy places, you notice that they did make the reference to the to the Temple Mount as being the issue, not the fact that they want to put a, a, a shingle up in the in the in the western part of Jerusalem, which everybody agrees will always be part of Israel. So the you know there are a lot of people who will want to exploit it. It will be the same way that he instigated the intifadas. He can Abbas can instigate uh, problems here. I think that this will not just be a haphazard move. I hope not. It'll be thought out, and it can be done in a way that that raises minimal hackles. Um, maybe even before it could have been discussed less, but you know there is a principle here, and the principle is that that there should be recognition of the capital, and it is American law. We passed it in '95. It's been waived every year, and. One of the steps can be that when it comes up for renewal in five months, that the, the, the president um, will will not waive it, which means then people can get passports with Jerusalem in it. They can do other things that uh, they could not do now, the, um, including maybe the embassy. Right. The um, uh, office. Correct. The Trump administration. Not the whole embassy. It's not going to move the embassy overnight. And people think, you know, that they're going to, because there's a huge number of employees. And there are buildings in Jerusalem that are consular services. Uh, they have, uh, America owns land in Jerusalem wherever they were going to build an embassy. So how there's many, a lot that can be done. How many people, in your estimation, work at the embassy in Israel? It can't be that many. Oh yes, it, many. It's in the hundreds. It's a big building. It's on. The, it's near the Don Hotel. It's a it's big in building. The, I don't know how many work there, but there are a lot of who are employed there, both Israelis and Americans. So it could be. Um, it could be in the hundreds. And the ambassador, the ambassador, uh, you know, has a very big operation. And one has to credit Dan Shapiro, was an excellent ambassador, a good friend to Israel. Obviously, he's Jewish and very committed personally, and. Um, was there for eight years, and I think every Israeli leader will will tell you that he did a really you know, great pro- job. You know, there's probably an Israeli high tech company that has developed a system that you know within days can easily make the move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. You know, it's probably been developed already because it could be a virtual move. That's exactly right. Exactly. And that's part of the the point that you know the the new ambassador who is a very capable person and very committed. Uh, 
can hang his, his hat anywhere. You know, wear his yarmulke, but I think he can hang his hat. And, yeah, that's true. Um, I, I got and it. Can, uh, you know, you don't have to have a, a new building that could become then, you know. And, and I have no doubt that Abbas will exploit this for demonstrations. But if they start getting a message, and this applies even more to Iran, I believe, and, and, but generally in the Middle East and around the world, if they get a message that America is not disengaged, America will be engaged, that America will hold people to account. You know, we, we fired warning shots in, in the Straits of Hormuz when uh, one of those little IRGC fast ships uh, started harassing one of our, uh, of our naval vessels, and nothing happened. And I told them, even if you blew them out of the water, they won't retaliate because they'll see straight. That's what will stop them. That was that's I- the only thing that scares them. That's an Iranian. Sh- that's an Iranian. We call it ship or boat. That was an Iranian boat, right? A, a boat. And and uh, now you're seeing all the announcements this week of how many many more concessions were made about 130 tons. Of, of natural uranium that they got shipped, that Russia was sending them, that in addition to all the payouts of money and all the other things, they were, they're, they're, they're getting shipments of uranium, which is more than they can use in the 15 years till the, the supposed breakout period. Uh, they've, they've increased by more than double the amount of money on their military uh, uh, spending between the, from last year to this year. Uh, they, they are uh, developing... And they're saying that the increased money will go to develop longer-range missiles and uh, armed drones and cyber war capacity and all the trouble that they, that they make. And the, the fact that they announce all these things and they, they challenge us, and then we find out that, there, that 200 metric tons of, of yellow cake uranium, uh, that they, it's way beyond what we were given to believe uh, would, they would be allowed to... Uh, to have, and that they're stockpiling it. Why? Why are they being allowed to do this? And why are they allowed to produce more enriched uh, and more uh, heavy water, which is also a nuclear product? Um, and then they, and because they go beyond the legal limit, they sell it, and we're paying them for it. And then, then we're telling them, and where the further compensation is, you're going to get more uh, uranium, which can be enriched later. And 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 uh, as one of the experts said, it's enough for for ten bombs. So. You know, there has to be a message that we're going to hold people to account, that we're going to, that, that you can make deals, but they're going to be lived up to. And once we have that credibility, it will give us far more leverage in the way we can carry out things in, in, in the Middle East and around the world. No, I agree with that. I just think that people might have higher hopes than, than realistic uh, when it comes to new administration in that area. That's all I'm saying. You know, it's now over two well, months. 70 percent of Israelis, in a, in a poll that just came out, said that uh, uh, 65% of Jewish Israelis say Barack Obama is pro-Palestinians, but 69% said that they, in another poll, said that uh, they expect Trump to be very friendly towards uh, towards Israel. And those numbers say a lot, but I think you're, you're making a good point, because if you listen to Tillerson, the Secretary of State-to-be, and, uh, and Mattis and stuff, there were things there Correct. that uh, were not as firm as some people would have expected. That's right. I think the expectation is wrong. Um, and we have many, there are many pro-Israel people who have been nominated for this government. And, but with every government, you know, America's interests will come first and they will, 
have to evaluate each circumstance. Right. Well, now, and then the president has to make decisions well, what, what direction it will. Well, take. now it sounds to me like you've been in Israel for more than a day because because it sounds like you've been speaking to Jerusalem officials, frankly, because it's now over two months. We know the enthusiasm in Jerusalem and other parts of Israel when the election results, uh, you know, uh, turned out the way they did back on November the eighth. It's now more than two months later, and I'm curious, and I don't even know if you have a definitive answer for this. I'm curious if that enthusiasm still remains in Israeli Jerusalem governmental circles, or if people, in fact, in powerful positions, in, in you know, one week away from the inauguration, are now wary of just how much support and how much of a warning shot toward Iran the new president is ready to commit to. Did you get that feeling from Jerusalem that it's different than two months ago, the way they're viewing the incoming administration? No, I think that the enthusiasm on the part of government, on the governmental level, remains. But there's a lot of questions, a lot of conf- you know confusion, a lot of uh, uh, which is only natural because they don't know all the players, they don't know you know how everything will translate. But I think there's a, a, a lot of optimism about the direction that things will take in terms of the U.S.-Israel relationship, that they will be able to work together, and Netanyahu, who will not come for the. Uh, in, uh, for the uh, president's installation uh, next week, but he will come. Uh, it looks like early on. I think they're even talking about a date when he would come. Um, so, uh, on that level, I think yes, that there are high expectations remain. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hurt feelings. There's a lot of people here uh, from the uh, Barack Obama administration. People who felt, and especially the vote at the United Nations, which has very profound uh, impact here. Uh, people in America already were on to the next thing, and I think the Paris conference they're, they're looking at now, and the quartet meeting, and the fact that the Barack Obama administration is continuing until literally the last minute, which, as you remember, a year ago, I said on your show, would be the case. that he's, And because he told me, I'm going to work till the last day, and I'm not going to be a lame duck president and that he would deal with his legacy issues, and that even about the Palestinian issue coming up at the end. So it was all to be expected. Yeah, it's I know. unusual. It's what? unusual, and it's in many respects unfair to a new incoming administration that you go to Paris. So I, I do not expect big things to come out of Paris, as I said to you all along. I don't believe there will be a U.N. resolution. And this starts, Again, and this, Council. And this starts Sunday, right? right? Sunday, 70 countries together? The 15th. The 15th, 15th. Sunday. Yeah, it'll go. I think it'll go two days or so. Uh, the communique, you know, they always write to communicate before these meetings. Right. I think it will not be particularly onerous. And if you notice, Hollande, the president of France, who's convened all this, has started to to downplay the outcome, the significance. So you have to look at that, the quartet meeting, and on the seventeenth, the meeting at the United Nations of the regular Middle East debate, where again all of these issues can be somehow raised. Though I, I, I don't see, and I think America will not allow another uh, resolution, and most places just don't have a stomach for it right now. All right, a, a million things I didn't get to today. Uh, Malcolm Homelines and Drews, just a couple of things. Um, so the, a February trip by the Prime Minister to the United States is possible, right? Mean, meaning it may, not even wait till, it may not even wait till March, April. It might even be very quickly after the inauguration, right? There are people who have talked about it, and... Uh, he had a trip planned, I think Australia and and Singapore in February, uh, but we'll have to see. Also, it depends, I guess, on what's happening with the investigations here, which are the most dominant news story right. of all. Yeah. More and more people are being investigated and being checked. I mean, you know, you know, the press doesn't even give the other side to the idiot story. 
You know, on the Yodach Ronot and this whole thing, I mean, from what I've been told, and this could be just, you know, maybe I've heard this from partisan voices, but from what I've been told, they approached the prime minister with this whole deal. It's not like he went to <laughs> to, to go behind the scenes and, and, and make a deal with a major Israeli newspaper. It, it sounds like they came to him. Yeah, the, the, the bad thing here is obviously that they have it on tape and they have, uh, but, you know, you have to know the whole context. You have to know everything that was said. It will come out, but, but it, you know, there, there are numer- numerous parallel invest- issues and investigations going on, but this seems to be the key one and others were dismissed. And uh, there will be an investigation of those things, uh, you know, why well, the whole process that this took, uh, as we are seeing in the United States, there's some parallels, yeah. but the... Um, you know, but they're very they're very aggressive here, and the media is uh, very unfair in its uh, portrayal, by and large. Uh, you know, because most of them are, let's say, left of center or left oriented. By the way, okay, I, I got to go. Rabbi Yudin is is going to speak to us from Israel as well. I I just got to say one thing: if he does come in February, March, whatever it is, I'm going to recommend to you. Um, I, I think, I think we need some type of, uh, of gathering in New York city, maybe in Washington in support of Israel. Cause I, I think people are, you know, are many of, many of whom, you know, have been down over the last few years because of the way the, uh, you know, the treatment of the prime minister has been portrayed, uh, and has been handled in Washington. I, I, I think we could use an event, a public event, not just the events that you, you preside over with, you know, leaders from the community across the country, but a public event where everyone comes out to greet the prime minister. I don't know if that's feasible or doable, but I think you'd agree that it would be. Uh, yeah, I hope you'll wait till there's warmer weather, which is when we can get more people out. I do agree that I think people need that catharsis. I, I, I welcome some of the events that have taken place this past week. Again, the people give expression. I know people are frustrated. I think you're, you're absolutely right in that regard. Um, but we have a, a, a limited window of opportunity between now and Pesach. And then after Pesach again to to do it. And by the way, I'm going to be in La Jolla at the Hilton with um, uh, Prime uh, Pesach. So for those who have been asking me and sending me emails about it, that's the answer. Uh, So we have a window of opportunity now on Pesach to to do something and... I think it should be a positive event. Yes, agreed. And can focus a, for a, when the prime minister is here. I'm saying I think it's a good an, idea. An event, an event, could be unifying. An event where the average guy like me could show up and show support for the prime minister of Israel. Simple as that. That's what I'm I think. For. Guys like you would be very valuable to have you show up and be, be <laughs> present and, and, and give us a view from the top. I, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> next week, Jerusalem, or next week, back in the U.S. Uh, next week, Friday, uh, I will be in the region until Thursday and Friday, I will be back in the U.S. Yes, for right. sure. We'll speak then. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Enjoy the holy city of Jerusalem. Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the weekly update Fridays here at JM in the AM.